Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 42. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious files, and compromised systems. Thanks for being here once again to talk about all the intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. It's great to have you back, Matt. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Good to see you. Good to be back. And a huge, huge thanks, as always, to the folks in our Intel chat. Hey, a busy couple of weeks we've had, and it's great to see some of the stuff that's been posted in the channel, some of the discussions that have been going on. I'm looking forward to covering some of it today. Yeah, I did my best without you last week, but it just wasn't the same. So very glad to have you back, and I'll echo your sentiment and thank everybody in that channel. It's really cool stuff that you guys come up with all the time. So. The first one up, I know you said you found fascinating. Elliptic's analysis suggests that North Korea's Lazarus Group is responsible for the theft of crypto assets suffered by users of Atomic Wallet. For those that are not aware of this yet, at least $35 million has reportedly been stolen from users of Atomic Wallet, a non-custodial cryptocurrency wallet service with 5 million users worldwide. In a June 3rd tweet, the service acknowledged reports of compromised wallets before confirming that less than 1% of users had been impacted. We talked about how North Korea is a little bit unique in that they have to subsidize their APT with the proceeds of financial crime. And for those that may not know, the Lazarus Group is a cybercrime group made up of an unknown number of individuals run by the government of North Korea. The FBI says the Lazarus Group is a North Korean state-sponsored hacking organization. I say tomato, tomato. I think what made this one interesting for me was the various money laundering techniques they used to wash the cryptocurrency. What did you find so interesting about this one, Matt? Yeah, so I'm always intrigued by seeing what the Lazarus Group does and the way that they fund themselves. I also find it very interesting when an adversary takes as much time to study and understand cryptocurrency protocols the way that that group does. Uh, I'm not saying that they're unique in that. I think there's plenty of groups out there that do that. But I, I think that their ability to study the protocols, find those weaknesses, and then exploit them or take advantage of them is really, really novel. And I find that always anytime I see like some really good research on display, I'm always I don't want to say impressed because they're, you know, malicious threat actors and stuff like that. But I do like seeing the fact that, you know, they are really delving into kind of the world of cryptocurrency, you know, and there's a lot of folks out there who talk about some of the dangers of cryptocurrency things you need to watch out for. And and I guess what I'm, you know, most intrigued by is seeing a group that's using it, but not necessarily for ransomware all the time. A lot of times when we hear about cryptocurrency being involved in any sort of incident or cybersecurity thing, if you will, it's usually in the form of like a ransom or some anonymous payment or something like that. These guys have actually gone through and have studied the protocols, studied the platforms, found weaknesses, and and really kind of worked their way into an advantageous position. Again, I know they're using it to fund what what we what we would say are illegal activities. Their state may have a different approach. But again, I think it's just a unique way to just observe some of the potential pitfalls, some of the potential risks of of cryptocurrency platforms and and cryptocurrencies in general. Reading about this, I learned that there are cryptocurrency laundering services. The one the article cites is called Sinbad Mixer, which I think takes the cryptocurrency and almost salts it into a bunch of different accounts and transactions to kind of obfuscate the source. Yeah, this is this is something that is going to make it tougher. Now, there, I you know I do know that there are folks and there are companies and there are services and law enforcement agents and things like that who will actually go through and track because 
it's a catch-22, right? It's easy to set up an account and just push money through it and push transfer through it to the point where the average researcher may end up being like, wow, this is way too many steps for me to follow. Um, the flip side of that is, you know, it, as easy as it is for them to set up accounts and transfer money, it's also public. It's on the known ledger. So you can sit and click through transfers as much as you need to. The mixers introduce a really, really unique concept to all of this because this is not just money moved from one account to another like you think of in a bank capacity where, you know, let's say you have a million dollars and you're moving it around, you might move 100,000 into 10 accounts or you might move, you know, 10,000 into 100 accounts. But you notice the smaller I get in the quantities, the more cumbersome it's going to be. We're not going to set up a thousand accounts to to move around a million dollars or something like that. But with crypto, it's just APIs. You can just simply just spin them up and just run them through. And, you know, again, to me, it's a really unique technical approach to running this through. And I think it's just something that's interesting study and an interesting thing to be aware of how it works. But I really wish it was not being done for, you know, malicious purposes. I wish we could see that kind of brain power put behind good reasons and good purposes. But Mixers are a way to kind of anonymize or maybe just drown out in the noise some illegal transfers or things you don't want anyone to know about. Mm -hmm. Just makes it more difficult and thus less likely to be uh, deep dived. All right. The next one I got on June 9th, the Microsoft Azure portal was down on the web. The threat actor known as Anonymous Sudan claimed to be the DDoSing culprit that caused the outage. Anonymous Sudan claims to be a hacktivist targeting U.S. companies to protest United States' involvement in Sudanese internal affairs. However, some believe this is a false flag and that the threat actors are actually Russian. While Microsoft has not confirmed that these outages were due to DDoS attacks, they did share the following statement with Bleeping Computer yesterday, hinting that the issues are more than just a technical problem. Microsoft told Bleeping Computer, and I quote, We are aware of these claims and are investigating. We are taking the necessary steps to protect customers and ensure the stability of our services. What do we make of this one, Matt? It's, are we in this new age of uh, DDoS attacks where botnets can take down giant cloud providers like Azure? Yeah, this is a unique one. I, I wish I had more technical details on this other than some random claim that it was being done. I, I will be very honest with you and say that prior to this happening, I was not really familiar with Anonymous Sudan. And uh, I do find it interesting that Anonymous Sudan is so infuriated with Microsoft's involvement in Sudanese government that the you know biggest target or perhaps most public target they've ever taken down is the entirety of Microsoft Azure. And that just seems like a really far stretch for me. So I may or may not be in the same boat as folks who view this as a false flag uh, to see have, you know, Anonymous Sudan quickly pop up and, and take take down a service like this just seems like a lot. That being said, uh, I do know that it was down. We haven't had an official report from Microsoft. I, I will say Microsoft has a pretty good job about letting us know what's going on. Um, sometimes folks feel like they're very hand wavy and whatnot. I would say if there's a threat actor out there who can kind of put Azure to or bring Azure to its knees, we're, we're going to know about it. We're going to hear about it. We're going to understand more about what this attack is. The one thing I would say to folks who are like kind of, you know, really thirsty for more additional details, it takes a long time to troubleshoot and figure out what happened in some of these things. It might take days or weeks. Uh, we're recording this on June 14th, and I believe it was about five days ago that this took place. It's going to take some time to pull together that root cause analysis and see what happened. I will make a note that, you know, outages at cloud providers do happen. 
And it is certainly a, a thing that may happen, unfortunately. I believe AWS actually went through one yesterday. There was a degradation of performance as well. And when a cloud provider has a performance degradation, you know, anyone can throw up a tweet that was like, ha ha, my tool worked, you know, and it's just going to take a while to see exactly what happened. And we're going to wait for a root cause analysis to see what actually occurred. That said, I also tend to lean towards a little bit of skepticism for folks who are saying it's a false flag and the threat actors are actually Russian. I want to see the evidence that the DDoS is what actually took it down. And I want to see that internal thing because I've seen config changes bring very large providers down to their knees before. And I think that's why Microsoft's waiting to see what had happened and, and maybe give us a status update if they actually have one. The other thing I'll mention is that the DDoS attacks did bring down portals for things like Outlook.com and, and OneDrive. That tends to really impact businesses and bring down some of those different services. The portal obviously is back up and running, but according to this Bleeping Computer article, again, we still don't have a root cause as to what took place. Apparently, and there is kind of a related article from a follow-up here, and y'all can take this at face value if you want, but apparently the update from Microsoft was that the preliminary root cause indicated a traffic spike. Which, of course, leaves us all to think, well, what type of traffic spike did you see? What type of traffic spike happened? Um, and again, we're just going to have to continue to wait for the kind of final thing to take place. And we'll hopefully get a full root cause at some point in time and we'll know what's going on. We'll know what's happened. Yeah, if it turns out to be a DDoS, I'd be very interested to learn the scale. Because you would suspect something like Azure would have lots of mechanisms in place to auto scale and handle large amount of traffic agreed agreed and i'll say for anyone curious go look up some of the uh, the largest ddos attacks that have ever been launched before i think github actually is probably in the top five they've received some really large attacks before so for some of the files that they've hosted and i mean we're i think we're i think i think i've seen attacks cross terabits before and it can get to a point i mean you got to remember these these are networked systems at some point in time an overload is not impossible right? We can build in as much resiliency as we possibly can. But at the end of the day, it's a network, packets get overloaded, services get brought down, load balancers do the best of their ability, the best of what they can, but everything's got a breaking point. Next up, we have one for the reap what you sow files. And you know, I love these ones. The US Department of Justice has indicted six people for their involvement in a $6 million business email compromise scan. The six individuals with an age range between 26 and 39 have been charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud and conspiracy to commit money laundering. Each faces a maximum of 40 years in prison. Whew. Uh, the alleged victims include a hospital labor union, a law firm, a real estate company, and a logistics company. The conspiracy members allegedly fooled them into wiring money between July 2021 and February 2022 by impersonating customers via emails that came from domains closely resembling legitimate sources. Business email compromise is a mainstay of social engineering fraud where it's conducted through spoofing a legitimate address or hacking into an inbox. Globally, between 2016 and 2021, companies lost $43 billion, with a B, to business email compromise. Research has found that business email compromise attacks nearly doubled in the past year and now make up about half of all social engineering attacks. The median cost of business email compromise, or BEC, attack is about $50,000. Matt, I know this is a subject that you've written about for the Lima Charlie blog. What do you think about this, and do you have any advice for the listeners on how they can harden their organizations against this kind of attack? 
Yeah, I will never shed a tear, nor will I ever get upset in watching a BEC threat actor get sentenced to prison. And in fact, I will happily, happily attend that trial if it's close enough and if I'm able to. Uh, Business email compromise is one of those attacks that once you've investigated a few of them, it just kind of sticks with you. And it's not the type of attack that you celebrate uh, investigating or having gone through. So anytime I kind of see this take place or anytime I see a BEC threat actor get brought down, it's always a good moment. Uh, I wish I could say that means that we're going to make a dent. But unfortunately, for everyone that comes down, you might have three or four more that pop up and they get smart, right? This article did a really good job of focusing on some of the things that they do to stay hidden from a threat actor perspective. They, you know, they, they, they tend to impersonate ACH, uh, for, uh, sorry, excuse me. You know, they tend to impersonate vendors, they tend to mimic invoices, they go through all sorts of stuff, they're hopping through inboxes, causing all sorts of problem. And to to your point, right, $43 billion in a five-year span, according to FBI numbers, and that's only what's been reported, and the FBI is very clear to say this is what we've reported, or what's been reported to us, if you will. But these types of attacks are ones that make businesses close and ruin life savings and things like that. And this is not really a fun space to be in whatsoever. And this one resulted in total losses of 2.6 million, which was just, you know, really, that's a lot of working money for small organizations, for small companies. That's a lot of working money. It's a lot of hard earned cash. And to see that walk out the door to threat actors who, quite frankly, use it to buy G-Wagons and private planes, I'm happy to see them go to jail. Absolutely. I just want to see it as something that uh, will end up being a long permanent effect. Maybe we'll see less of this. But as I mentioned, not going away. These are not victimless crimes, unfortunately. So a few things that folks can do to defend against these types of attacks. Number one, as much as I I hate to give this type of advice because it feels so rudimentary. Implement a two or three check process in order to transfer funds in this type of money or to transfer funds at all. You know, if someone calls up and says that, hey, I'm, I'm needing to change ACH details, I'm needing to transfer money in a pinch or any of those types of things, then have a second verification in place or call up and do it. You know, it's I'm not blaming anyone any unique person, but a lot of these attacks are successful because someone didn't follow up and say, well, this doesn't make sense, but I'll do it anyways. You know, um, just follow up and call or, or validate that that's supposed to be there. Call the bank and say, Hey, I just, does so-and-so vendor work with you? Is this a legitimate account? How long it's been open for? Understand as a business, you don't have the ability to view bank records and see what type of, you know, there's no BBB, there's no better business bureau for a bank account, but call the bank and say, hey, I'm curious about this thing. And you'll start to get a feeling as to whether you're transferring to a legitimate organization or not. That's on the person side. On the technical side, a lot of email these days is done through cloud providers. I would say utilize whatever tools they've got in place. We want to go towards preventing account compromise, so I'm going to lean towards multi-factor authentication. I know it's basic, but it can stop a percentage of these types of attacks. Utilize strong passwords, change them if credentials get stolen. And then, of course, also look for some of the hallmark signatures of these types of threat actors as well. Uh, Mail inbox rules, moving things to trash, RSS feeds, logins from geographic locations that don't make sense. You know, if I've got a company in... You know, Pennsylvania in the United States, for example, and I start seeing mail logins from either an international location or somewhere else inside the United States, 
I'm going to have some questions. Who is it? Who's logging into this thing? You know, I, my business is very regional. Why do I have people logging in from other states and, and things like that? So it, it's a little bit of log auditing, a little bit of understanding cash flow processes and maybe fixing or augmenting those. And then the other part of it is taking advantage of all the technical capabilities that are offered in some of these platforms. I wish there was a no BEC please checkbox that you could select. Unfortunately, it's still an amalgamation of settings we've got to enable. But again, if I can stop, you know, or if we can all work together to stop 10% of these attacks in a month, well, Chris, right now that's about almost $5 billion. So I'll take that 10% reduction if we can. And any number over that is measured in monetary value. So anything we can do to bat them down, we certainly will. Yeah, and I think you touched on it the thing I th- about these that I think makes them so horrible is that, you know, $50,000 to a small, medium-sized business can be existential. That kind of loss can can end a business and, and ruin a life's work. So, yeah, very happy to see these guys go to jail. And, and they're also older than a lot of the people we see who go away uh, when we do these kind of reports. So there's no excuse there. Well, this is, yeah, you bring up an interesting point. This is the catch. The, this is the issue with attacks like these, right? Um, whenever anyone thinks of it, and I know this happens a lot, but when a lot of folks think of threat actors, they tend to have a profile of like a younger male, um, maybe mid twenties, early thirties or something. And these guys are 26 through 39, but you got to remember, you know, these types of attacks have been around for many years now. So these guys started out as those young males, that stereotypical threat actor profile, if you will, but then they've been at it for so long. You know, they've been at it for so long. I mean, you got to think 2016 was, you know, seven years ago, depending on when the attacks took place. I know personally, I've spoken on and researched BEC attacks dating back to 2014. And we've seen statistics back then. I remember investigating some in 2014, 2015 and days like that. So they've been around for, you know, quite a while. And, you know, eight, seven, eight years ago, these guys were those young, stereotypical threat actors. But now they've grown up and this I would maybe turn that around and say the sad part here is that they've had seven, eight years of crime to fund their lifestyle and they're still at it. And now we're just finally getting to them, which is, you know, a great place to be at. The other thing that I'll mention that you touched upon, Chris, the reason why these are such damaging attacks, I'll share a quick story. And, and if anyone listening has been in the same boat, we'd love to hear about it in our Slack channel to jump in and definitely drop us a line or let us know some of these stories. I would recommend we do an episode dedicated on BEC just because it's so detrimental. But I helped an organization in, invest or investigate a BEC attack one time, and they were having to discontinue 401k matching for their employees. They were seeing college funds wiped out to be able to pay for the damages caused by the losses here. They were having to reduce benefits, and there was another company I worked with. They had to let three people go from a staff of 12 to be able to accommodate for the money that was taken. And I mean, you got to think, you know, those three people, I'll just do simple math. Let's say each one of those people has a spouse, a couple of kids. Now I'm talking six college funds need a new source of funding, three houses. And, you know, we're not talking about a bunch of C-suite members being let go, right? These are folks who are just doing normal jobs and they're not losing their job because they did anything wrong. They're not losing their job related to a cybersecurity incident. They're losing their job because someone somewhere decided to commit fraud, steal money from an organization and simply said, screw the consequences. So anytime we see that turned around and we say, no, you're going to pay 
for the consequences. We're happy to see that because these are devastating attacks that bring down a lot, a significant portion of the industry. And the other final note I'll add here, when a lot of folks think about cyber attacks, I think they tend to think of those front page newspaper attacks that hit really big corporations that have massive security teams or at least an appreciable security budget and can do some things with it. Small to medium businesses, you know, the average BEC attack is about $50,000, as you mentioned. These are companies that might have 100K in the bank total, everything, their cash flow or their, you know, cash deposits or cash reserves are $100,000 and they lose half of it in a split second, all because of this type of attack. So, you know, it takes a long time to earn that money and get it there. And then to have a threat actor just take it away from you in just a moment is very disheartening. So, like I said, and I'll keep harping on this, and maybe I'll let it go after this one here. But anytime we can see BEC threat actors brought to justice, happily. And I will never, ever say publicly that the sentences were too long. They're too short. Fresh out yesterday, this recording taking place on June the 14th, 2023, is CBE-2023-27997 being reported by Fortinet. The vulnerability being reported is related to a previous incident that was reported back in January 2023 where a heap-based buffer overflow in Forta OS SSL VPN with exploitation was observed in the wild. As part of that investigation, the team at Fortinet initiated a code audit of the SSL VPN module. That audit, along with a disclosure from a third-party researcher, led to the identification of the issues being remediated in this current firmware release. At this time, the researchers are not linking it to the Volt Typhoon campaign, but they are kind of inferring that. If you are a regular listener of the show, you will remember that we recently talked about Volt Typhoon, the super stealthy campaign discovered by Microsoft where Chinese threat actors were laying potentially destructive infrastructure to disrupt critical communications between the United States and the Asia region during a future crisis. Any thoughts on this one, Matt? Someone in the channel called out Fortinet. Sonic Wall and Pulse is constant headaches. Is there a history of compromise with these kinds of devices? <laughs> Funny that someone called out those three companies. I can't speak in in you know definitive terms about any of those three being constant headaches. Uh, I will just simply say that you know these are externally facing devices. They are designed to face the internet. They are designed to be connected to from people, and they are designed to sit and exist in that position for a while. What I mean by that is when you've got perimeter devices that fall victim to vulnerabilities, it makes it really easy for adversaries to weaponize and jump in. You know, we're not talking about a vulnerability of an internally protected system or something that may be kind of buried in a defense in depth deployment or something that may sit behind a whole series and team of firewalls and whatnot. And you've got to kind of be in there in order to take advantage of it. These are externally facing devices. And when we get CVE scores of like 9.2 and 8.3 and things like that, these are, these are pretty big deals. Pretty big deals because it can be easily weaponized, if not already, and then quickly used and exploited by threat actors. And then, of course, used to run code, gain an implant, access to additional systems, so on and so forth. Everything I just described is amplified when you have a popular product or a popular product that you see throughout a lot of different nations and industries, and you can think of any threat profile you want, the more I have a product scattered throughout those, the wider footprint I'm going to have from a potentially impacted perspective. And sure enough, that's what we've got in this case. You know, Fortinet is not a small company by any means. They've got plenty of devices out there in the wild. 
And they're seeing these types of attacks uh, focused on government, manufacturing, critical infrastructure, severity level is critical. This is a huge thing. If you are a Fortinet SSL VPN user, you definitely need to make sure that you are putting these patches in place and getting these products sealed up. The other side of it, or I should say the other problem here, I think we've talked about on this podcast before, Chris, is when a certain vulnerability like this comes out, it's a race. It's a matter of time before it gets weaponized, if it's not already, and then used and exploited in mass by every opportunistic threat actor that's out there. So ranging from nation states who might have discovered this and actually utilized it first, we're waiting on that proof of concept code that allows every ransomware threat actor out there to then deploy it themselves. So with that said, you know, patch, patch, patch. But I do appreciate that comment from uh, someone in our Slack who said, hey, these are, you know, constant headaches, constant sources of incident response. And what's happening there is they're calling out the fact that you've got, again, these perimeter facing devices, these these edge facing devices, and they are just kind of, once again, very easily, very susceptible to these types of attacks. We want to make sure to get these things patched and sealed up to the best of our ability. Yeah, I could see somebody seeing this report come out and then jumping on Shodan, finding some of these things out in the wild and then testing to see if they've been patched. Oh, that's exactly. I mean, yeah, that 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 right there is like, uh, I guess, anti-opsec or, you know, Discovery 101 or Recon Reconnaissance 101 is, oh, new thing. Let me hop over to Shodan and see what's available for that particular type of thing. And hey, how many instances are out there? And then boom, you've now got a list of systems to go after and target. I will go a step further. And I will say that if you go over to uh, to Shodan, they actually have some 40, Fortinet focused searches in place and things like that. So it's, you know, and, and this, again, just amplifies just how big of a deal this type of thing can be, because we're looking at an easily publicly available service that I can use to go scan all the different instances that are out there. And I'm just going to craft my target list off of that. And boom, we're good to go. We're on our way. So yeah, uh, Shodan is great from a research perspective, but whew, it makes it really easy for adversaries to build target lists. Yeah, and uh, Fortinet has provided a hardening guide, which I will link uh, along with the original vulnerability report in the show notes. The next one is from Trend Micro, who recently discovered the use of heavily obfuscated batch files utilizing the advanced bat cloak engine to deploy various malware families at different instances. They did some analysis on some samples from September 2022 and January 2023 and found these batch files were designed to be fully undetectable or FUD and that they demonstrate a remarkable ability to persistently evade security solutions. This gives threat actors the ability to load various malware families and exploits. We've talked quite a bit about polymorphism here on the podcast, but these seem different. What do you know about Batcloak, Matt? Well, the first thing that I'll say about this article, and I found it interesting, I don't know how they got this published with this in there, but FUD, or F-U-D, has typically been associated with kind of fear, uncertain, and doubt, which may or may not have contributed <laughs> to the sales tactics of some folks of cybersecurity in you know, decade past and stuff like that. So the fact that they're trying to rebrand fully undetectable as FUD, I'm not sure if what the replacement there is meant to be. But uh, if you tell me that you've got FUD malware, I, I think that it's malware that's not that scary or not being talked up. The, the words fully undetectable have not been 
a translation of that acronym until now, as far as I'm concerned. But I don't know. Maybe I'm behind okay, the curve. It, it on, did feel a little off to me because yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. if you see, you, you know, we're talking about this, and someone says, "Oh, there's FUD malware here," and I'm like, "Cool, so it's not real malware." Like, no, 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 that meant fully undetectable. Now, the second thing I'll bring up, Chris, is fully undetectable. Well, then, how did we get this article? If it was fully undetectable, <laughs> then you know we wouldn't be here talking about it and stuff like that. What I think has happened here. The detection rate has been very low for Batcloak, and it has uh, had a very, very low detection rate across multiple detection mechanisms, whether it's something like virus total or all sorts of rules and things like that. It's, you know, got a low detection rate, which doesn't make it undetectable necessarily. It just means that it is very hard to detect using the current tools that are in place. We've got to be careful about the way that we phrase that. Now, that being said, they do indicate and they do kind of break out the percentages and a hat tip to the guys at Trend Micro for putting it together in this particular way. They do say that they analyze hundreds of samples found in a public repository. Only about 80% of those samples exhibited zero detections, but the other 20% did have some form of detections, whether it's 1, 2, 10, 13, or whatever it might have been. So it's not completely undetectable. There's just a large majority that don't currently trip detections. So I think, again, what that does is it um, gives threat actors another opportunity, as we've talked about before many, many times, of just ways to stay hidden, ways to evade defenses. Of course, with the knowledge of this out, I would say they're likely not going to be fully undetectable or FUD (laughs) anymore, um, interestingly enough. But, you know, of of course, it, it does speak towards what the adversaries were trying to do when they designed these things. Now, I believe that some of this malware did, you know, it was these were batch scripts. Um, These were things that were using basic MS-DOS commands like set, which is a command that a lot of readers might not even be aware of and whatnot, because it it definitely reaches back a little bit to the older days. The, you know, evasive, sorry, I should say the loading process, there's a batch file and then a PowerShell loader and then a C-sharp stub. So it does very quickly jump outside of those batch files into some things that we're a little more familiar with, like that PowerShell and C-sharp style malware. So again, I've got to say it's probably the loader part of this process that has gotten such low detection ratios. But again, really good write-up on this. It's about a 30-page PDF. I recommend checking this one out. They do walk through some really cool code examples of, of how this type of malware works, ways that it can be brought together, some of its strong points and things that they're looking for. They do call out, you know, details such as file manipulation, self-deletion, some other evasive and anti-forensic techniques, anti-virtual machine, anti-debugging, all sorts of, you know, different mechanisms built in place. I don't see these as necessarily anything new. Uh, We've seen all these techniques before. I just think the way they're going about loading and perhaps some of the early stage initial files just had a very low detection ratio. And that's given them kind of this status here once again. I'll repeat it. I thought FUD stood for something else until we saw it come (laughs) up in this. But uh, still, you know, something for researchers to be aware of. And I won't kind of repeat this every time we talk about it. But we've talked about before about malware authors or threat actors kind of obfuscating their code, trying to hide their malware. And again, it all goes back to the same thing, right? I want to remain undetected. I want to have my malware in your environment without being caught. How can I go about doing that? And this is just yet another technique to get there. But the nice thing about research like this is once we know about it, well, you're not undetectable anymore because now we know what you look like. So once Batman's mask comes off, 
we know it's Bruce Wayne. On to the next evasive technique. There we go. And I can I can understand how the acronym wires got crossed in this industry. There's too many to keep up with. Way too many. But yeah. I, I will give them credit for uh, trying to coin the term. And I don't know. Again, maybe I am uh, out of it to the point where FUD has been renamed and has been declared as fully undetectable malware, not, <laughs> you know, uh, not, not fear, uncertainty, and doubt, which I guess it was for multiple decades prior to this. But nonetheless, uh, a really good walkthrough. And again, a hat tip over to the folks over at Trend Research for sharing this one with us. All right. And the last one I got for us today is uh, one that I found super interesting. It's uh, from one of our frequent Intel channel contributors, Yohai Greenberg. Shout out to Yohai and another user known as Frost. Uh, they shared a really cool PDF, the CY Explorer 2023 report put out by Orange Cyber Defense. It is quite wordy at 62 pages, but an unbelievable asset for anybody interested in the state of and history of extortion and ransomware. Lots of great information and graphics. They even have a genealogy tree of the different ransomware groups. I'm not going to go into depth here, but wanted to call it out and let listeners know that it'll be linked in the show notes. Uh, you can find a copy of the report in our Intel channel also. Thanks again to Yohai. Matt, I just wanted to add this one here because I know we talk about how the different uh, ransomware groups kind of have spinoffs that go on to do different things and we can kind of trace back their methodology to the the group that they started from and in this report has some really cool graphs that show the sort of hierarchy of of how they've evolved and they also show different points where law enforcement has come in and and sort of stopped that branch awesome yeah no definitely a a really important report uh, again thanks to our intel channel for bringing that up and anyone who wants to read it you can jump in there and the pdf copies in there for you to view Anytime we can get a history lesson about how ransomware actors have worked, arrests, lineage, I think calling out the different genealogies of the ransomware families is very important to helping us understand. Chris, I know there's multiple times where you and I have been like, is it this family? Is it that family? Which one is it? And reports like this really help that out. So if you're someone who's got to investigate ransomware or likes to do that type of threat research or just wants to learn more about how the ransomware industry or problem got to the way that it did, I definitely recommend checking this out. But uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting resource, a good read. It's a little wordy, as you mentioned, 62 pages, but packed with all sorts of great great intel and, and great stuff to be shared. So definitely recommend checking it out. Okay, Matt, it uh, looks like we're at the end of our time for this week. Great to have you back. Really appreciate everything you bring. And a big thank you to everybody on the Slack channel who's contributing week in and week out. It's such a great resource, and we're happy to kind of push this knowledge out there for the benefit of everybody. Likewise. Take care, Chris. Good chat with you. See you next week. Cheers. Bye. And that concludes episode 42 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you on the next episode.